Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and critic. Today I'm going to be talking to Amy Raphael. She is a writer, author, journalist. She's done loads of work, loads of jobs. She's a really, really amazing person. Some of her books include A Game of Two Halves, Famous Football Fans Meet Their Heroes, A Seat at the Table, Women on the Frontline of Music, uh, the brilliantly titled Nevermind the Bollocks, Women Rewrite Rock. She's also written books on Danny Boyle, Mike Lee. She's written a novel, Forest of Moon and Sword, and she's worked for a ton of magazines and newspapers, The Face, L, Enemy, Rolling Stone, Sight and Sound, The Radio Times, you name it, she's done it. She's really fascinating as a character in and of herself, but we're going to be talking about her uh, a revised edition of her book on uh, Mike Lee, uh, who is also having a film retrospective at the BFI um, around about now. If you enjoy the podcast, please do me the biggest of favors and like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everybody. I really appreciate it. We are growing, but we can uh, we can always grow faster, and that would be great. It would help me out. You know, I am a superficial person, and numbers matter to me. Um, if you want, you can follow me on Twitter, talking about superficiality. Uh, at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I grew up in a 
in London. I mean, they were, they were, um, I guess film, film and music were kind of always positioned side by side in my mind as my kind of first loves, I guess, with Kenny, you know, a, a good dose of Kenny Dalglish on the side. So I, 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 you know, I grew up in the 70s and my dad used to take me to illegally, completely illegally. I mean, the things you could do back then were, were, were absurd, but he used to take me to the ICA to see things like the Python films. When I really wouldn't have been, I would have been, I don't know, probably 10. Under 10. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it must have been because I left London when I was 12. So uh, it must have been when I was barely in double digits. And, and I remember kind of going to the ICA and, and just thinking, probably the only kid in the audience, to be honest, and just thinking it was the most incredible thing. So I, I kind of had that. And then I had I was, I don't have any memory of this, so it's kind of a pointless thing to show off about, but my mum and dad took me to the first ever Glastonbury in 1990. Oh, wow. Well, I don't remember seeing anybody. Uh, and they also took me to see the Stones in, in Hyde Park, and I don't remember any of that either. But I think when you're kind of, the first gig I remember going to, well, the first gig I went to, it was first proper memory of seeing Bob Dylan at Earl's Court in, uh, when I was 12, I think, 79. So I kind of, they always, to me, they were, I mean, they're not the same thing. Of course, they're not the same thing. But in my head, they're kind of interchangeable as, as my kind of go-to places for, for under, you know, making sense of the world and, and finding happiness or indulging in melancholia or whatever it is you want to do. I kind of feel like they're very similar things for me and for a lot of people, I think. So I guess... Yes, when I when I when I first um, graduated and got my job, my first job at, at, at the Face, I was writing a lot about music, but I was writing about film as well. Mm. Um, and my first book was was about music, I guess. So, and I love the title of your first book as well. <laughs> never, never mind the bollocks. No, I, I think I mean, the, the ridiculous thing about that was that the full title was never mind the bollocks. Women rewrite rock, and 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 because bollocks aren't a word in the states they they had to change the title and i was so pissed off oh man what did they what did they change it to girls with many in the middle and no no vowels and 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 then the 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 subhead was viva rock divas and i was just a bit like for god's sake there's the american audience for you but i mean grateful that i was obviously to be have my first book published in the states it was i think never mind the bollocks is such a brilliant title so yeah so that that was where i started out i guess and I think it was probably music that made me want to be a journalist. This is really embarrassing. I don't think I've ever told anyone this before or shared this with anybody outside. <laughs> but I remember going to see ABBA the movie when I was about 10 and the journalist in that got to meet ABBA. And I thought, ah, oh, if you get to meet ABBA, I'm going to be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever? What, met ABBA? Yeah. No, no, ah. no I, don't, I don't want to. I don't want to. I think I don't want to meet them, and I don't. I don't want to meet Bob Dylan. I, I, I just. I fear for. I fear for. No, I, I, I no. I, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I wouldn't if I had the opportunity. I don't think. Too scary. Really, really. really? Yeah, yeah. Never meet your heroes. Sort of scary. Well, yeah, but I mean, I've met. I've met loads of heroes, but I just think there's something. There's something kind of. I don't know about Abba. I just. I would have liked to have met them then and not now, not when they're kind of mm. hologram versions of themselves or whatever they are these days. So I kind of, 
no i think i think they kind of belong to, to 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 my past they don't belong to a kind of meryl streep version of my past so much as i love meryl so i think yeah anyway that that's that 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 was my that was my outing into music and film and books i guess yeah, I think that I think what you say is really true. That it's quite common for a lot of people. You know, my idea of heaven as a teenager was probably having a rolled-up copy of the enemy stuffed in my pocket while I saunter into a, a cinema to see something before going exactly. to a gig in the evening. You know, but, but do you remember? Because when I left when I left London at twelve and moved moved to Shropshire, uh, my mum remarried and we and, and we moved to a, a small town. And I remember. Do you remember how exciting it was knowing that you could go and get. The enemy i think it was on a wednesday because i think it came out in london on a tuesday and we could go and get out you know in the provinces we could go and get it on a wednesday and the excitement of going to get a, an actual physical copy mm. of what was probably the best publication in the world at that point was just yeah and you're right that together with the kind of seductive darkness of a cinema i mean it, it didn't get much better than that i don't think Absolutely. And occasionally you'd see someone with a melody maker or a sounds and you'd be like, well, what are you doing? What are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's snobbery. I kind of and I don't think people of, of, a, of a OK, well, let's say millennials is a kind of catch all. But I, th- I think I think unless you're of a certain age, you, you, you don't understand how kind of tribal everything was in the in the in the 80s. It was, wasn't it? It was really, you know, you you you, you had your football team. You didn't deviate from that. You couldn't secretly admire another football team. You had your, you had the enemy. If you knew what you were doing, you, you had the directors you loved. You know that was your thing. That was was kind of that kind of defined you. And 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 I remember just feeling um, having arguments with people about, you know, who I didn't think had any taste at all, and just you know, I mean, not arguments, discussions, but. But although I did go to, I went to a, a, a very forward thinking school in London called Holland Park, mm. which, which is a bit odd now I hear, but, but was one of the most progressive schools in London in the 70s. And then we left London and I went to a small town that was very white, um, which was a shock coming, going from Notting Hill to a, to a white town and people, there wasn't that kind of diversity of taste of what people, of, 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 of kind of musical film. It was mm. just very narrow so it was just star wars or it was just greece or it was you know stevie wonder maybe but but only for the music i mean it was it was very weird so i remember just you know the 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 enemy and the face and all those publications were just a lifeline i think i grew up in barren furnace and it was this very sort of uh it's a peninsula so it's there's no way in or out and it's a real hot hotbed of like creativity loads of creative bands loads of people you never played covers and just exactly what you said that tribal idea of taste where you could like the cure or you could like the smiths but you couldn't like both you know it was you, you had to have you have to make certain choices and years later we would sort of i'd meet people from the from the old town and we'd talk about it and we'd say you know i liked the cure and the smiths you know I like the cure and the smiths but i think i think when i went to lancaster university and i think i, I started there in 1985 and i definitely had obviously this was before we knew um about Morrissey, but I, de- I definitely had po- massive posters of Smiths and a massive poster of Fat Bob on my walls. And I don't think anyone cared in Lancaster. Maybe that was a, I don't know. But yeah, it was, it was, you know, you couldn't like, you couldn't like indie and jazz and blah, blah, blah. And I really, actually, I, I felt that a bit when I, when I went to the face, I felt like they thought I was this kind of weird 
kid going to Glastonbury this was before Glastonbury was cool you know and going to indie gigs every night and going to see odd films and and and, and so on and I mean all that's changed now there is I don't feel like there's really an under partly age I think but I don't feel like there's an underground in the same way mm. that there was when we were growing up yeah when people start talking about Ghostbusters being a cult movie and you're sort of thinking how, how is that cult I mean I was in the cinema when it was on and it was packed I know. it's not like I know. I know. Um, and so in terms of film, what were the, what were those first films that you, and filmmakers that you started sort of uh, kind of nailing your colours to the mast? I think, I mean, it would have been incredibly broad. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't pretend I was particularly cool. You know, I loved Abba the movie. I love, I was dubious about Star Wars and, and, and I, I kind of, you know, I went to see it, but I mean, many years later, Danny Boyle said that he doesn't do sci-fi with animals in it. And I kind of think that, I agree with that. But I I love those. I loved, I mean, I think most of all those Python films just stuck in my head as just being so kind of, it would have been around the time of punk, punk emerging as well, 76, 77, I guess. And I just thought they were, they were just so exciting and naughty and challenging and, and completely disrespectful. And I don't know how you understand that as a kid, but you kind of do, don't you? You kind of know that, that, that they're pushing the boundaries of things. So I think I think probably the Python films really stuck in my head as, as a kind of benchmark. And, and then, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I remember very clearly seeing Nuts in May, watching that with my dad and, and, and just thinking, this is really bizarre filmmaking because it's, it's, again, in a very childish way. So it's quite hard to recreate what, I was listening to your Gabriel Byrne interview and he was talking about memory, wasn't he? And how we, mm. how we remember things versus the reality of what happened. But, but my memory of watching Nuts in May was very much um, of understanding its humour, but just thinking, you know, please God, never let me be in a marriage with a guy like him. I don't ever want to meet a Keith um, with his kind of pseudo-military voice. And, 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 and oh, I just, it just, so I think, I think, it wasn't really directors so much. I mean, I wouldn't have been aware that that was Mike Lee because I was too young. And I, I think it was, I would just see things like the play for today's, I guess, on, on telly because, you know, we were limited to three channels. I'm, I'm so old that we were limited to three channels at that point. And I think the play for today's were massive for me as well because they, they just felt like a kind of realism, I guess, that the... You know, everybody who was into into Star Wars and Greece and Saturday Night Fever, I was a bit too slightly young for. But but it just felt like I really responded to that realism. I guess I really liked that that representation of of life on screen. I can't stand the word authentic, but in an authentic way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that. So I, I'm not sure. I think I was a bit. I think I misplayed for today, but I do remember Nuts in May play. I, I remember watching that because I remember thinking, this is my uncle. I've got an uncle who's, who, <laughs> just because I'm still alive. <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately not. I mean, I loved him and he was lovely, but he was that guy that said, be sure and chew your food 27 times before you swallow it. And that sort of stuff was, was just like, oh, he's quoting Uncle Derek. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. I guess it was that kind of, that thing of those play for today's being just almost too close for comfort mm, mm. Um, you know and 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 just thinking god you know have, have they have they met my family as you say how, how do these people know what's going on and I think also I remember watching I have a memory of Ken Loach 
when I was young as well, and Kathy come home. So I suppose my dad, who, who, who died when I was 17 and is buried close to Karl Marx in um, Highgate Cemetery, uh, I, I, I came from a very socialist mother and a, and a, and a kind of Marxist-ish dad. So I guess I would have been looking, I would have been very aware of politics from a, from a, from a young age. And, and, and I remember leafleting for the Labour Party with my dad in the 70s. And I think walking up massive tower blocks and posting individual flyers for people's tours. So I guess I would have been looking for that to be somehow replicated in the, the stuff I was watching on screen rather than pure escapism, maybe. And it's interesting what Mike Lee says in, in the book that he's talking about, you know, uh, whenever sort of politics is mentioned in terms of his films, he's like, well, every film I make is political because, you know, it's about people and people making decisions. So, you know, that's always political. Yeah. And I mean, I think he would say that, you know, although he's a contemporary of Ken Loach and although for some reason people always confuse them. I don't understand why, but anyway, they look very, very different and they make very different films. But I think Mike Lee's films uh, have, have, have always been political. And I think, you know, obviously more overtly political with a film like Peter Lou. But, you know, that th those kind of things he addresses of bleak suburban embarrassment, whether to have kids or not, the decisions we make about relationships, you know, do we stay in, in bad relationships? Where do we find happiness in life? I mean, all of that in the widest, wider sense of, of politics, because it's kind of, it's just, it's just, it, well, it's humanity, isn't it, I suppose? Mm. Mm. And, and and I I would think of him as a kind of humane director rather than a political director. But I mean that's that's for him to that's for him to to, to talk about, I suppose, not me. When did you when did you sort of uh, first float the idea of doing the book, and how did that come about? Uh, well, I just realised today that I I it's twenty years this month since I first talked to him, talked to Mike Lee. It makes me feel really old. But I interviewed. I was working at Esquire at the time and I was editor at large and I interviewed, I, I did a lot of Esquire interviews, which were a complete luxury because they were 4,000 words. And you, wow. you, you could, yeah, I mean, can you imagine? And you could go off and, and, and spend, I don't know, you know, three days in Barcelona with Bobby Robson, for God's sake. I mean, things that would mm. never, the kind of access you'd never get now. And I'd, I was, I'd interviewed Tim Spall in October, 2001, and he was, and we got we got on. I'd never met him before, but we 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 got on really really well. And that sounds ridiculous, but we you, you sometimes just get on with people you interview. You know. Oh sure, me me and Gabriel oh, Byrne are best guy. friends now. We're we're, we're best buds. <laughs> but he he kind of he drew this handful of kind of bits of paper out of his pocket, and then kind of looked at them and then hid them very quickly. And I said, "What on earth's that?" Because you know he was very he was very smartly dressed, and and he had all these scraps of ideas in his pocket a bit like you know when Bowie used to cut up all his lyrics it would look like that it looked like he'd nicked all of Bowie's lyrics and and I and I asked what it was and he said oh he was he was doing a film with 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 Mike Lee but he couldn't say what it was or what it was about or anything and it, it ended up being all or nothing um and then I had to speak to Mike a week after that and which is the first time I'd ever talked to him and and, and asked him about Tim for the for, for the interview and then I met him, I met Mike a year later in 2002, and we had a bit of an argument, like a bit of a horrible argument, because Esquire were doing an, a, an issue on, on what, it, what it meant to be British. He was doing publicity for All or Nothing, and he thought that I was coming to interview him about All or Nothing. 
And I turned up and said, right, so let's talk about the Britishness in your films, kind of knowing that he wouldn't like it mm. because, you know, knowing that he'd kind of say, well, they've all got universal themes and, 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 and so on. And so we nearly didn't do the interview, but I stood up for myself, kind of, we had it. I don't, I don't know that it was a row, but it was, it was uncomfortable. And then I just, I didn't really think anything of it. And then in 2005, he, he got in touch and said, would I, would, did I want to do this book with him? The favor mm. on Mike Lee. And of course I had to think about it for like one second before saying, <laughs> yes, please. So, so, so that was the genesis of it. And, 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 you know, I mean, it was it was daunting because it was the first book I'd done after Nevermind the Bollocks. And you know, he, 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 he's exacting. He, 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 you know, you, you have to be on 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 your game. You can't you can't kind of you couldn't turn up with a hangover. You couldn't turn right. up. You know, you, 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 you couldn't. And I mean, it's the same with it's the same with all these people. You know, I worked with David Hare on his autobiography and you have to just be super present and switched on and and in a way it's really good it's 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 really it's a really good discipline because your mind can't wander off you just have to be in the room responding to what he's saying and and you know he quite often and we did the interviews for the for the first book in his offices in Soho which he's now given up because of the pandemic but we we, we did it's where he auditioned everybody so it felt like they were kind of ghosts of traumatized mm. actors kind of <laughs> but god knows what it'd be like to do an audition for him I, I dread to think but um but I just found him kind of I, I don't know just fascinating I suppose and and he knew a lot about you know he, he he knows a lot he goes to the cinema all the time he goes to the theater all the time he reads you know he he you can kind of and if if you're if you're curious about the world as, as I was and I am you can kind of feed off that right and 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 you just learn you end up learning so just so so much and 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 yeah it was a two it felt like a two-way conversation as well it wasn't just me sitting there kind of re, you know it was a conversation rather than me just asking questions and him answering and you know sometimes he'd say that's a question with no answer and I'd have to say well then it's a book with no content and you know it was a bit like that it was a bit kind of and then we just start laughing and, and I think what people maybe don't realize with Mike is how close that humor is to the surface always and you can see it in the films you know even in the bleakest films it's there you know it's not just in Happy Go Lucky it's there in All or Nothing which All or Nothing I, I really love actually I think kind of underrated but well, Happy Go Lucky is probably underrated as well but I think yeah so that so that was the process of the of, of the first book I think we met nine times or something and had very very long sessions and I'd get the train back to Brighton where I live absolutely battered um, you know and he, he's a, he's he's a good couple of decades older than me and yet he can keep going and going and going and I'd be there kind of thinking Jesus can I go now <laughs> but like all the air had been sucked out of the room and still he'd be going and an articulate as he was four hours before and I'd be kind of thinking I'm just going <laughs> to pass out here so his that ability that he has to just keep going is incredible I like the way you put the that element of that of your relationship and the actual interview into the book that you you don't sort of edit out any of those uh, exchanges when you're sort of saying when he's saying that's that's not a question and or at one point you say to him oh you you're pulling a face you're pulling a face at that question what's that and he's like I'm not pulling a face I'm, carry on with your question you know <laughs> well I think I think I kind of I think that's because a it's kind of it's honest. It's an it's a kind of honest way of doing it. B, 
surprisingly, he didn't edit those bits out of the book, which I fully expected there to be kind of red lines, just saying, you know, take this out, but he didn't. And 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 see, I think I always I remember my um, Peter Howarth, my editor at Esquire, saying that when we did the Esquire interviews, whoever was doing the Esquire interview, that the reader wanted to feel like they were in the pub with the person or in, you know, having dinner or in a cafe, wherever, somewhere intimate, where, you know, where you'd be, you'd be, you know, having a pint or a coffee or whatever with Bobby Robson or Jarvis Cocker or whoever. And, and I think that always stuck with me as, as if you, if, if you meet somebody who has been creatively successful, you, you want to let the reader into that experience as much as you possibly can. And, and journalism doesn't allow for that anymore, I don't think, which is a real shame. You sometimes, I mean, you get it in the New York Times, that the New York Times have space to do that kind of thing, but you don't really get it in, 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 in British journalism anymore. And I think it's a real shame because I really want to know, you get it, actually Simon Hattonstone does that, he does that brilliantly for The Guardian, but very few other people are either allowed to or choose to do it. And I think I want to know that someone's pulling a face when they answer a question mm, mm. myself probably because I'm nosier than your average person, but I think, you know, it kind of brings it off the page a little bit. It, it kind of makes it a bit lively, so. Yeah, you want someone to be eating a Twix or something so that you can say, you know, as they <laughs> as they bit into their Twix. <laughs> yeah, or as, you know, when I interviewed Leonardo DiCaprio for three seconds once on the phone, and, you know, he was eating a bag of crisps as he talked mm. because he was really hungry because he'd been doing back-to-back interviews and, and and I was a bit like ah, yeah okay you're Leo DiCaprio but really eating a bag of crisps and then I thought about it again and I thought actually he was probably starving and had like no time at all he I just happened to get Leo eats crisps um and you want to read that in the piece you know you want to know that he's eating a bag of crisps um sadly I don't know what flavor it was but Anyway, I think detail is wonderful. In well, you let you let yourself down as a journalist there. The three seconds I had with him to ask not about working with Baz Luhrmann, but, but what flavour crisps he was eating. <laughs> 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 <Cool> journalism. <laughs> so when um, when Mike asked you to do the book, was that um, had you know? You were obviously already very engaged in his films. I mean, you you, you just mentioned uh, Nuts in May as a, as a kid watching that. But uh, were you sort of going to the cinema to watch his movies as they came out? Were they were you following his career very closely? Yeah, I mean, kind of in a in a an atheist religious way. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I think, you know, I remember going to see Secrets and Lies, for example, when, when it first came out and being kind of floored by it I think yeah I, I, yeah ab- absolutely I would have done I and and and, and I I still do but I I, I think you know it, it, it's certain, I don't know there's certain there's certain directors aren't there who when they when they release a new film you just want to know what it's like yeah. even their last few films haven't been brilliant you still and I'm not saying that about Mr Turner or Peter Lou but I'm just saying generally you know whether it's I also um wrote a Danny Boyle book for or two Danny Boyle books for, for Faber along the same lines as the Mike Lee one. And you just want to know what these what what these people are doing next. You know, like I'll always want to know what Lynn Ramsey's doing next or Chloe yeah. Bernard or you know, it, it, it there's, there's maybe 12 directors who just, you know, everybody's got their their kind of their dozen favorite directors who they always just want to know what what the work's like. And it's it's it might not be a kind of communal experience like going to see Bond. 
it might mm. just be something you do with three other people on a wet afternoon in the cinema <laughs> but you know it's just something that you will always do that you can't kind of let those films slip by so yeah he, he would have been part of my you know, he was definitely on my list of, of, of filmmakers whose work I would never have missed. But I still had to re-watch everything that winter. And... How was that? Hard work. I mean, brilliant, but hard work. Because I also had to write... I also decided that I was going to do a synopsis, a detailed synopsis of each film for the start of each chapter, just to remind people of mm. what of what went on. And I could have done, like, a, a really short couple of paragraphs, but no, I had to do almost a scene-by-scene... Thing. So I created a complete rod for my my back, and I had to do that again with the update with Mr. Turner and Peter Lou, which was incredibly complicated. The Peter Lou one seemed to be the longest of of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's longer than any chapter in the book. So I think I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult with these books, isn't it? Because you kind of Faber Faber just allow. I don't. I don't. Think, I don't know if they're commissioning anymore, actually. But but sadly, but I think. Uh, and I think it would be really nice if they commissioned a, a, a couple of female journalists, because I think there's me and one other woman on the entire list, and there's about 25 books, and they're all by male journalists. Just, I'm sure, by chance, but it's a bit weird. But I think you're, you're pretty much, you know, you, as, as long as you're doing film by... Well, you don't even have to do film by film, I don't think. You could you could choose, do whatever format you want to do. And I I don't really know. I think the way I've done it with with with, with Mike and, and, the, and the ones I did with Danny Boyle, they kind of work because you can dip in and out. So if naked is your thing, then, you know, you, you can just dip into that and ignore high hopes or whatever, obviously. So I think, you know, I'm not expecting, especially this one, have, have you had an actual physical copy? No, I haven't got the physical copy, no. I've, I read the PDF. I mean, I know people can't see this on a podcast. Oh, right, yeah. It's quite a thick... It, it is... <laughs> very sick it's, it's you, could kill, you could kill a cat with that definitely don't tell my cat that but yeah you could kill you could kill my cat with that so i think you know they are they are supposed to be definitive that is the point of them you know you you, you chat to collaborators uh which is always brilliant um you know so you talk to eddie marsan about the, the the research he did for for happy go lucky you know he spent six months researching conspiracy theories six months <laughs> <laughs> and I think it is, it is, it is in, in fact, you know, as, as great, it is, as interesting as it is talking to Mike, I, I mean, talking to his collaborators is, is fascinating. And, and, and I think when they did, uh, this is a Vera Drake spoiler, so turn off now if you haven't watched Vera Drake, which you really ought to, because it is as poignant, more poignant now than when it came out, actually. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. But... But they 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 did. I mean, this is just unbelievable that 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 when they did that when they did that scene um, where the police come and arrest Vera Drake for for um, performing illegal abortions in in the 1950s in the UK. Nobody knew around that table knew that the police were coming. Not Imelda Staunton, not Phil Davis, not Danny Mays. Nobody knew the mm. police. <laughs> I mean. It's just astonishing filmmaking, and you can see the surprise on their faces. And I think Phil Davis says in 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 the in 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 the book that that they saw all these these actors dressed as cops, and they just thought they were going off to do something else. They didn't think he didn't think it had anything to do with his family. Right. At all. And similarly, in 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 that brilliant barbecue scene in Secrets and Lies, you know that was a ten hour improvisation. But mm. talking to Tim Spall about that, talk, you know. It, 
it's just it's just really interesting i think if you if if you or or, or you know talking to the 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 crew you know talking to susie davis about rebuilding the the 1832 Royal Academy for Mr. Turner, you know, I mean, that is a labor of love. It's, it, it, it's, and I love Mr. Turner. I think it's a, 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 a brilliant film, but that scene where, where, where Turner's up against constable, constable and, and, and they're, you know, basically being bitchy with each other, you know, it just feel, you just feel like you were there. It just feels like, and that's really, really hard to do. And, and it, and it's all, you know, it's all Mike's meticulous planning. That, that 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 allows that to happen and the research that they do whether it's you know six months on conspiracy theories or whatever it is it, it just you know you do get you're not watching you might be watching and thinking many things but you're not thinking oh nobody could be bothered to do to, to to research their part properly you know it always feels kind of real I mean that's the strange thing about Mike Lee for me personally and this is just my my uh, he isn't one of my 12 authors, my dozen or, uh, uh, directors, sorry, that I would necessarily be sort of running to the cinema to see what he's done next. And yet reading your book, I was going, oh, yeah, Naked, that's good. Oh, yeah, hi ho, that's good. Oh, oh wow, Vera Drake, that's a masterpiece. Oh, oh, oh Mr. Turner, I saw that in, in Cannes when it premiered, and I thought it was one of the best films of the festival. It was just, it was just amazing. And and so I'm going through them going, well, why, well, why isn't he one of my one of those dozen filmmakers because he certainly made you know more than a handful of of films that I would sort of rate as among the best in British cinema I mean I think maybe maybe I don't know what your what your dozen I don't know why I decided on a dozen but that kind of seems to make sense but I think your your dozen whoever your dozen filmmakers are I think if you're interested in film his films kind of I don't know they kind of seep they seep into your life somehow, mm-hmm. and, you know. And Johnny and Naked is just part of an ongoing discussion about ma- masculinity and how men define themselves and how men de- behave with women. Again, particularly a relevant discussion this week. And 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 I think you know maybe you would you would you, you would you would choose to go and see a Ridley Scott film before before you'd see a Mike Lee film. I mean, not you, anybody, but I. Th- at some point that Mike Lee film would become part of your consciousness because that's what his films seem to do. And, and it's extraordinary. I mean, you know, Miss Peter Lou is a, is a difficult film and it's not a commercial film, but the fact that it resonated so closely with, with, with what was going on around the world in terms of all the, the, the riots in, in, in America and, 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 and how all that played out under Trump's, in inverted commas, presidency. You know, how does he manage to do that? It, it, the, the comments he makes on our difficult times are kind of always prescient and all, and he's not setting out to do that ever, I think. He's just, he's utterly pleasing himself. He's not thinking, oh, you know, abortion is gonna become a big, a big issue again in 10 years time. I mean, of course he's not thinking like that. He's far too selfish to be thinking like that. He's just thinking about what pleases him. So I, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what I can't, I don't know why I'm trying to work out why you don't rush to the cinema to see his film. <laughs> <laughs> out, but again, you're um, failing in your job as a journalist. <laughs> I, I think, but I think it's, it's, there's no kind of urgency, let's mm. say, in the way that, the, you know, because he's not hyped up, obviously, in the right. way that, you know, June or all of those kind of, those blockbuster films are, but also even the, 
the kind of must-see smaller indie films. He, he's a completely standalone director, is I suppose what I'm very, mm. very boringly coming around to. And therefore, you know, you can you can see his films whenever, and they'll 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 be relevant. I mean, you know, you can watch Nuts in May now, and of course, it's dated in terms of fashion and the film stock and and so on. But it's you know, it it could be remade next week mm. with pretty much similar dialogue, and it would be still as funny. You know, that humour, our, our essentially, quintessentially British humour hasn't changed since I was nine, which is, you know, decades ago. So I think, I think there's a kind of, there's a, there's a quality to his films that, that last, that have longevity, longevity, that is quite unusual, probably. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I would do a mea culpa in terms of I think that it's not so much fault of Mike Lee's film, certainly, and and or anyone needing to convince me, but it's more I think there's a certain attitude in Britain to our own filmmakers that after they reach a certain success, we want to sort of just put them in a dismissive like pigeonhole that we can, you know what I mean, that we can say. Okay, you know, Mike Lee always does this and he always does that. And then then you actually watch, you actually go read your book and you go through the list of movies and you go, well, actually, no, I mean, Another Year. That's a brilliant film. I love that film, you know. Yeah. And I, and so it's you've sort of tarred them all with, with or you've tarred all the films with the same brush and you should have, you know, and, and you should actually look at the diversity rather than the, the similarities. Those, you know, those are a bunch of really different films in there. It's not, it's not just a Mike Lee film, even though there's obviously a sensibility uh, behind all those films and there's certainly a, 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 a methodology. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, he, 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 he makes every film in his same kind of, quasi mysterious way and they work that you know some are more commercial than others um but I think he doesn't have like 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 Danny Boyle might talk about um or I pushed him on his kind of that you know the 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 fact that most of most Danny Boyle films kind of start start you know have the the first act is, is is generally enthralling the second act is pretty good and the third acts then kind of drift away like he's lost interest that is quite often I don't know if you do you agree am I yeah that's that's yeah yeah no I, I mean as a gross you know yeah it works with um what was the, the science fiction film Sun, sunshine. sunshine yeah train spotting definitely arrives with a bang and then sort of becomes a bit episodic towards the end yeah, no, I, I I think that's fairly. Charles Dickens always Charles Dickens always used to do that as well. He used to keep in good company, and and I'm not, I'm not, you know, I have I've never made a film, so I imagine it's really hard to sustain that level of energy through three acts or however many acts you you're creating in your work. But I think I think um, it's harder to 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 put Mike Lee films in that category. Of, of saying well they've all got this failing or that failing and I know people have tried by saying that some of his characters are caricatures you know and that's that that's personal re- reaction response that's fine but I think I think they're harder to 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 you know I think he's I think also in his later years he's become so so ambitious that you kind of think a lot of a lot of directors would be and I'm being ageist here but a lot of directors might be thinking about winding down a little bit, but you've got people like Ridley Scott, Mike Lee, Ken Loach, who are all wanting to make, you know, really big, important, exciting films. 
as they either head for their 80s or are in their 80s. And I think that's absolutely brilliant because, of course, they've got more to say than they've ever had to say because of the life, you know, they've been alive for, for seven or eight decades. So, but it is still that idea. And I, I think the kind of saddest thing about this book, uh, the, 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 the Mike Lee book is, is at the end of the, the, the Peter Lou chapter, he, he talks and the, and the book, I should explain first of all, that the book was supposed to come out last August, as in August mm. 20, but was put back by, COVID, delayed by COVID and then, and then, Faber decided that it would be it'd be wise to publish it um, to coincide with the BFI retrospective that's coming up in October. But but he talks at the end of the Peterloo chapter about the, the the trouble he has getting funding and that he can't make the kind of films he wants to make, which are right. the you know, I think for Mr. Turner, he really wanted to go to Venice and, and and film in Venice. And there just wasn't the budget to do that. And I think, you know, if you're a director who 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 goes to, you know, goes to the the, the the, the, the people who have the money and, and, and say, you know, I want to make a film, but I'm not going to tell you what it's about because I don't know. <laughs> There's going to be an element of, of scepticism there, obviously. But I think also it's a real shame because part of me would, you know, part of me would love to, 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 to see him not with his back against the wall making films for, for small, relatively small, you know, ambitious films for relatively small budgets. But I just think it would be amazing to give him a great big wad of money and see what he does with it. And, and, and okay, he's not gonna, I mean, probably the closest he's got to an action movie is, is, is the scene at the end of Peterloo. But, but you know, I, I, I think it's, a, and, and, and there could be an argument, I suppose, you know, should, should, those, should that kind of old guard in inverted commas be giving way to, to young, diverse filmmakers? And yes, of course, there should be, you know, youth is always, you know, young people are always making really exciting work. But I think also, you know, they're learning from 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 the previous from the, from from the previous generations. And and I think, I don't know. I mean, I I don't even know where I'm where I'm going with this with this discussion. But I'm I'm I suppose I just think it's very sad that the that the funding isn't on the table for him to kind of have a last hurrah. With, with you know being able to to make a film that that was shot in Europe as well as as well as in a you know a semi-detached house on a on an estate in England with people drinking endless cups of tea and and you know hiding their secrets very well yeah I mean yeah I it, it does seem like there's this broadening of perspective and 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 you unfortunately you require a budget for that and it's not you know it it does seem really unfair that that's not uh, forthcoming and I mean there is a there is a general sense in the, the latter part of the book that there's a sort of uh, he feels very um, bitterly a, a sort of lack of rec recognition from from things like BAFTA um, specifically I mean sort of like the Oscar nominations it's like yeah yeah we're never going to win but that's always very nice but then then BAFTA don't don't recognize Mr Turner and and it's it feels like a poke in the eye I mean I can't really talk about that honestly, that 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 kind of thing's for him to talk about, not not for me. But I do think. Do you think he's been? Let me rephrase it then, in a way that's that's a bit um, is a bit more appropriate to 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 you answering it. Do you, do you think he's got his fair due from the uh, from the the various bodies and and even the critical community? I think to a degree, yeah. I mean, I think you know he's widely seen as one of the best filmmakers 
uh, and has been for a long time. And, and I think he might not want, he might not have chosen to be defined to the extent he is by Abigail's party. But I think also he recognises, you know, he, 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 he recognises, I mean, the, the, the Abigail's party is just bizarre. I think that the, the way it, it kind of, each each successive generation of film fans seems to discover it again and again. And I, But I think, you know, people also are discovering meantime and 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 you know Gary Oldman and, and Tim Roth are fantastic in meantime and yet again I'll say the same thing you know you've got disillusioned unemployed youth in Thatcher's Britain that could be in Boris Johnson's Britain now and I think in that sense his films are ageless and timeless remain ageless and timeless so I think I, I would say I mean how much do you want to be recognized I, how how important are awards I don't know um I'm not about to be I'm not about to win a BAFTA I, I don't know I mean I also think awards are, are only important if you don't win them and and I don't know I genuinely don't know how important any of that stuff is to him apart from when he he's asked I know that he's asked about it a lot and when he responds that then becomes kind of headline news it's not something I've talked to about so I mean it's in it's touched on in the book and he's obviously pissed off at the end of Peterloo. And I wanted to, I didn't actually want that stuff to be in the book because I thought it was too negative, but that's the way mm. he feels. And, and I respect that. But I think, I don't know. I mean, who who is Ridley Scott? I, I keep on talking about Ridley Scott because I was listening to your Ian Nathan podcast. <laughs> I started thinking about all Ridley Scott films. You know, are any of these guys lauded as much as they should be? I don't know. I, I think they all seem to have a fair amount of respect. You know, there's retrospectives that happen at the BFI. There's So I, I don't know, but I do think, I do think awards are weird. And I think, you know, you can, you can watch the, on, on a, but this is me talking personally as a writer and a fan, not, not as anything to do with Mike Lee, but, you know, you can watch the Emmys and think, what? You can watch, you know, you can watch the BAFTAs and think, you know, it, it's just, it, it's just impossible. And the Oscars are absurd most of the time. Or suddenly they'll remember that 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 they're a room. The Oscars will think, you know, we're a room of 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 old white guys. We really should recognise. Oh yeah, Moonlight. Um, you know, it, it's I, I'm and I'm quite cynical about awards. I I don't think that the people who hand out the awards are probably diverse enough in every respect, in terms of gender, ethnicity, whatever, across the board, right. for it to really have the value that it's given, that, that, that they're given. But that, that's just my personal thing. Um, yeah, I'm with George C. Scott. He called them a, a meat parade, and he he's the only actor who turned down his Oscar because he thought the idea of the Oscar was stupid rather than for some political or, yeah. you know, but, you know, in all the years of the Oscars, very, very few people have turned down one. And he was the only one to say, because it's silly. Yeah, it is silly. It, it, you know, it is just, it's just silly. And I mean, you can see it's silly because of all the, you know, what, what do you see in the papers the next day or online the next day? People's dresses and suits. Yeah. What the fuck has that got to do with film? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, talking about in terms of the other the other sort of uh, an idea that gets lost a bit when we talk about diversity as well is the idea of class. And Mike Lee seems to be someone who who is a director who who looks at the entire sort of social spectrum rather than sort of concentrating on the middle class or even necessarily concentrating on the working class. He's he he 
you know his films span the whole the whole social uh, spectrum you know that that's something that that i when i started watching him i sort of felt very that was very recognizably british that sort of notion of class yeah which is why when i when i first met him face to face and 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 he argued about his films not fitting into that notion neatly into that notion of britishness i i thought it was a bit absurd which is why we we argued but i think I kind of understand what he's saying in the universal theme thing, but I do think his films are very, very British. I mean, if you if you were to take High Hopes and and and, and stick it in Rome or Milan or Bologna, it's not going to work in the same way. Mm. I just can't imagine it working in, in in the same way. And and the comment and 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 the 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 the, the class system we have in Britain is very very pronounced compared to a lot of other. Well, I was going to say other European countries. We can't say that anymore, can we? Two countries in Europe. So I think I think he 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 is. I don't know. I I, I think for me, when I'm talking about diversity, I I, I do mean class as well. Sure, um, sure. Um, but you're right. It's not often it's not often mentioned, or it's not mentioned enough. And I think the things that he doesn't always get the class thing completely right because. I don't think you can get it all completely, completely right. But I don't think he's being voyeuristic. And I, I think the thing that he also does brilliantly is women in film um, and always has done and, and has kind of done it right from, from bleak moments, his, his first feature film, through to Secrets and Lies and the dynamic between those, those, the, the, the women in Secrets and Lies to Vera Drake, to Poppy and Happy Go Lucky, you know, he just does women brilliantly on screen and and that is quite a big compliment for a guy that you know a, a, a male filmmaker i think i know that people have had historically problems with naked and will i'm sure there'll be a rumblings when it's shown at the retrospective next month or october in october but i think he's always you know he, he i mean in naked particularly i guess he's challenging as i said before those ideas of masculinity and and I think in other films he's gently challenging women's roles in society but without bludgeoning people over the head about it and I I, I think he's not actually celebrated enough for doing that personally um just because he doesn't kind of run around saying he's a feminist or wear a t-shirt saying I'm a feminist you know he just gets on with it you know and I think the very subtle bullying of Keith in Nuts in May to Candice Mui is you know that's a case in point it's a you know he's a really boorish man being mean to his you know adoring wife and that's not that's not just accident that's design you know so i think there needs to be a thesis on mike lee feminist director yes i'm joking i'm joking but you know what do you think do you, do you agree am i am i on a well it's yeah no i i i do agree i I was just going to say, actually, Naked, I think, was my first Mike Lee in the cinema. I went to see it at the 051 in Liverpool, a small independent cinema. And I remember the the arguments that we had around that film. And I, it was a film I found very uncomfortable and yet would defend, but at the same time would listen to arguments from, from friends who were very... Uh, and I think a lot of it, funnily enough, boiled down to the, to the poster which um which you bring up in the book as well that's that shows a scene which is 
just before a rape and and yet it's yeah which is which is not necessarily Mike Lee's decision either but um in terms of a broader looking at his female characters on a on a much broader scale throughout his films yeah no absolutely there is a real there's a real empathy there and there's a real depth and also he's someone who's not afraid of of portraying women you know fucking up and doing bad things and you know does it's it's not an idealistic sort of you know it's the director who wears a, a t-shirt saying i am a feminist or the male director who re- wears a t-shirt saying i am a feminist i would imagine would would be prey to that kind of fraudulence yeah and i think you know it, it, it's i i i you know i i, I think no director is 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 perfect obviously and filmmaking is very very challenging but I think he's not you know Mike Lee is not afraid to make to make mistakes and he's not afraid to look in dark corners and I and, and I think I don't know it, it's 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 a strange one because I think it'll be it would be interesting watching Naked with an audience now which I haven't done for a very long time and seeing and kind of feeling that atmosphere because I think partly because of the, of, of, of the horrendous stories that have been in the news recently, partly because, yeah, I've got a 17-year-old daughter and her generation is very, very vocal and talk a lot about female safety and male use of, use of pornography, you know, the use of pornography and Pornhub and the Reddit, Reddit, you know, how available all of that stuff is. And I think, and how that affects men's behaviour. And, I, and I, I think that would make, I'd almost need to see Naked again in that environment to be able to talk about it because it just, mm. the conversation shifted so much since, since it came out. And it was shocking. I remember seeing it in the cinema and just thinking, fuck, what's this? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, and Thulis is so powerful and so utterly believable that I think, you know, if you'd come out of the cinema and bumped into him, You'd have, you know, you'd have been absolutely terrified, yeah. almost like it, it, it was it was a horror film in a way. Um, but I think, you know, those stories probably need to be, you know, do need to be told. And and do they need to be told by male directors? I don't know. Again, that's probably changed since since Naked first came out. I, I don't know what people would think about that. But I think personally my my point of view would always be that the thought police are everywhere and anything that allows you to have a conversation about very difficult issues any piece of culture that allows you or provokes you to have conversa- those difficult conversations is important thulis is one of many sort of actors that have sort of come through sort of mike lee's films and and you know reached huge prominence you know, since and Eddie Mars and you mentioned Timothy Spall to some extent, although I think he was he was sort of already quite big in television. And, and Sally Hawkins, you know, you've got all these actors going out, Gary Oldman, Tim Roth, you already mentioned. That I, I wonder if that's sort of something that you don't really see much anymore. That there used to be these filmmakers who who would be proving grounds for young talent in Britain, and nowadays it, it maybe it's not as maybe just people find it easier to get get off to America straight away anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think again, I mean, it brings us back to class, doesn't it? Because I think Mike gave without doing it intentionally, he gave a lot of young working class actors their first break. And I don't see that happening anywhere else, really, apart from 
in TV sometimes. So I think in terms specifically of film, I I I can't off the top of my head think of anyone else who's 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 doing that, who isn't a writer, director, actor, perhaps. I think, I mean, probably, you know, a thousand people will stick up their hands and say you're completely wrong, but but I think it was the 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 the, the whole landscape of filmmaking has changed, hasn't it? It is much harder for young working class actors like you know Phil Davis and so on to to to, to get those breaks, and I think it, it's it's an absurd a, a, a example because he's gone on to be so successful, not particularly in the world of acting. But James Corden was in All or Nothing, which people mm. forget, you know. And 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 I was just so he so he has made some mistakes and might be. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to comment on that, but I think <laughs> you know it, it, it's. It's you know would Sally Hawkins have 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 made it if she wasn't given her first job in All or Nothing? Yeah, I'm sure she would have done because she's a brilliant, brilliant actor um, and a fantastic woman. But I think it might have been a lot harder for those actors to to to, to come through. She's not a working class actor at all. But I'm just you know I, I'm just I, I I suppose it's just it's it's actually quite depressing to think of how hard it is for for kids coming through today. Um, and how much money you need behind you to be able to get through drama school, to pay for drama school, to to keep going for for years while you're trying to get a break, um, and how easy is it is for your Eddie Redmaynes and Cumberbatches and so on. Well, that, yeah, that's the thing. I was I was just trying to think of a bunch of young actors, and aside John Boyega, I can hardly think of any who who come from anything you know approximating a, a working class background i might be i might be totally wrong but it, well that's what i'm trying to think as i talk benedict to cumberbatch tom hiddleston i don't know maybe tom hardy i don't know what his background is particularly no i don't i don't no i but but there's not kind of you know like half a dozen names tripping off our tongues yeah it's not like in the 60s or 50s where you had albert finney and you yeah. had all those that gener a generation of kind of working class actors coming you know richard burton richard harris peter o'toole all coming out of fairly you know working class communities and and I mean, all those gorgeous men, you know, that there's still going to be gorgeous young men out there from those communities and, and their stories need to be told. We need to be seeing them on, 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 on telly. And, and like you were saying, you know, diversity is completely includes class mm. um, and people forget about that a lot. And I think that's a, that's a travesty, really. Um, yeah. But I think it's, it's not for us to, 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 to rectify. Sadly, we can whinge about it a bit. But <laughs> the revolution starts here, Amy. <laughs> you, you'd be surprised, you know. This is the Arch, Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination right here. You don't seems little, doesn't seem to matter. Seems a far something far away, but in fact, we, but, we fired a gun. <laughs> We're the driver that took the wrong turn. Uh, um, in terms of well, bringing it back uh, um, to, to Mike's last film, Peterloo, uh, which I have a I have a strange relationship with Peterloo. I have to I have to fess up straight away because I wrote a novel based on Peterloo uh, a few years ago. It was and it, it's coincidentally, or maybe not even that coincidentally in terms of it. It mirrors the structure of Mike's film. It starts at Waterloo. Oh, and and goes you know goes through and I mean it's not really that coincidental because it's based on the same historical thing and so the, even the fact that Peterloo is called Peterloo after Waterloo it's a pretty much a sort of no shit Sherlock sort of connection to make you know 
But I, when so when I was watching it, I couldn't sort of watch it objectively. I was just watching it, going, "Hmm, that okay, that's a bit better than what I did. Mm, that's not as good. Mm, that's a bit better." That's not... um, but what was your what was your reaction to it? Because I I got the feeling when I was reading those last in, in, interviews that you were quite ambivalent about the film. I don't. I'm not ambivalent about it. I think you know. Okay, the, the bottom line is, I just wish it had been more commercial because I think the revolution is not going to start with working class, I mean, sorry, with, with middle-class educated people watching Peterloo. I really, really wanted it to be, and I don't even know how this is possible, so, so I'm kind of sounding horribly naive here, and, and not, you know, this, this, this thesis isn't, isn't rooted in any kind of realism, but I wanted everybody, I wanted that the, 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 the people that the film is about to see the film that was never going to happen because I don't know how you make that film. I don't know how you do a call to arms with, you know, with, 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 with a, I don't know how you do that anyway in, in, in the world we're living in today. And, and I don't know how you do it with a limited budget, but I think I'm not ambivalent about it. I think it's a really, really interesting film. And I think I might have preferred it if, there had been a central character whose journey I could follow, like say the the the, the Maxine Peak character. I'd I'd have mm. maybe preferred to have seen it from one POV, but that's just my laziness as a cinema goer. You know, I I thought the all the oratory stuff uh, with Roy Kinnear was just, was just Roy Kinnear was just brilliant, and I thought that I was on set for when they were doing some of the fight, some of the scenes at the end. And, and it was brilliant to watch, you know, with all the, the horses being choreographed and stuff. It was, mm. it was fantastic. But I suppose I just wanted it. It just somehow didn't quite have that mainstream appeal. And that's what I wanted it to have, because I think we need, you know, we, 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 we learn from history, ultimately. And, and so, you know, it, it's, the, it's not on the curriculum. People didn't know, people didn't know about, about Peterloo, even, even people who grew up in Manchester didn't know about Peterloo. And it was only really people like Maxine Peake who'd been very passionate about it for a long time because her grandmother, her grandfather, sorry, talked to her about it and so on. But I think if those things aren't on the school curriculum, you know, you, we, we need films to, 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 to kind of force that, kind of like, you know, force that subject in, into the mainstream. And, and that's, that, that was my disappointment with it, I think, that there was something about it that it may be because of its length, and, and, and people will only go and watch a very long film if it's Bond. You know, it, it just didn't have that streak of commercialism that I would have liked. But then that's not Mike Lee's filmmaking. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm completely contradicting myself essentially because that was never the film he was going to make. You, you wanted know? Ridley Scott to make it basically. <laughs> I'm not, uh, no comment. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think in a way only Mike could have made Peterloo. Right. But, you know, I wanted more bums on seats. I wanted people to, to, to be talking about it. I wanted it to be a water cooler conversation. It, 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 despite having Amazon's backing, it didn't become that. And my ambivalence, I suppose, is a kind of a kind of quiet sigh or a not so quiet sigh at the kind of global apathy towards learning from history. 
I mean, look, it's for me, it's an absolute, you know, it's an event that that I think is kind of key to to the development of the Chartists and then the feminism and the suffragette movement and even things like the Guardian coming sort of come out of that. Yeah. And it should be on school curriculums, you know, it, it should be taught in school, it should be, don't get me started on Michael Gove, it's just, it's just a shame that the way we learn about history in this country is fucked up. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and it's a film that I've seen it, I've seen it three or four times, and you get more out of it actually each time you watch it, you know, and, and, and it's exciting to watch, even though you know the ending is going to be awful. And I cry, I've, I've also cried every time I've watched it, I have to right. say. I can't right. bear the end. I just find it too impossible to think that those young lads fought for their country and then were abandoned. Yeah. Um, have you got a recommended film book for us, for Alice? Oh, yes, yes, I do. I do. It is, yes, it is the definitive study of Alfred Hitchcock by Francois Truffaut, which is my go-to film book has been my go-to film book for years and years and years and no doubt you can see the influence of this in the Mike Lee and Danny Boyle books because it is the best one of the best Q&A one of the best conversations between two filmmakers that exists I think and I I, I go back to it often mm. um, and it's from a it's from another world by now it's from a completely vanished world but but I love it and I would I would recommend it if, if if you if you like film and you and 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 you haven't read it, I would honestly recommend it. And you can dip in and out of it at, at will. It's a completely brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. That's that's a brilliant recommendation. And and thank you very much for joining me for the conversation. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. So that was my com. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so that was my conversation with Amy Raphael. We had to uh, we had to cut it short a little bit towards the end because uh, she had an interv- she had a uh, a phone call from Mike Lee. Fittingly enough, that she had to answer. <laughs> Her recommended book was Truffaut uh, on and Hitchcock, uh, which is which I'm halfway through actually, and is brilliant i would i'll add my voice uh unnecessary though that is to amy's recommendation um hopefully you're you're all getting a nice big pile of books uh to to work your way through i've certainly read some some really good ones i'm also um into city of nets which was uh recommended by ian nathan on our ridley scott episode i hope you're enjoying these these podcasts i i don't want to sound needy but um you know retweeting and liking and all that stuff and and you know commenting and giving me feedback even feedback of a mildly constructive constructively critical nature uh wouldn't 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 be entirely unwelcome um i i much prefer just unambiguous praise but if if there is anything that niggles you or anything that you think a guest that we should have or somebody we should talk to or and i keep saying we and it's just me uh, well, it's me and, and you, basically. Those, those are the two people who are... Uh, me, you, and the guests. So three at any one time is a threesome, a throuple. Okay, a throuple. Okay, <laughs> I think that's enough. I think you can tell that's enough by now. Th- oh, thanks very much to Ellie Atkins for the music and to Ali Howard for helping out with the artwork. And uh, until uh, the next episode, um, please take care. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.